Man, if there's one thing that I've learned uh, after 60 plus years on this planet, it is that family is the crucible in which we live our lives. And I look back over my life, as I'm sure you do from time to time, and when I think about life, I think about family. Uh, my family of origin, growing up in suburban Minneapolis and Minnesota, my current family, 40 plus great years with Amy, married to her, two grown kids, two in-laws, and five grandkids. I also think um, about living life in church family. I've often thought and have tried to relay to the students in our ministry that if you had one word to pen on to what church is at its best, it's family. It's why we call each other brothers and sisters. We're destined to be together forever. And even though we may not have be biological family, we are spiritual family, and that's true in big, big ways. Uh, Amy and I have been in a number of church families over the years, from Minnesota to Chicago to California to Philly to here. And obviously for the last 30 years, it's been here. And throughout those 30 years, not only church family big, but I've had the privilege of um, having a front row seat and many times kind of an internal view of hundreds of different families, especially families with teenagers. And what a privilege that has been. I've always thought that ministry at its core is a privilege. It's not a right, it's a privilege. And to be involved in a myriad of different families has been an incredible ride. And over time, uh, I've made some observations. I'd like to share a few of them with you this morning. First, families are incredibly complex. On the one hand, families can be and often are, and I'm sure you've experienced this in your family, what Christopher Lash likes to describe in his helpful book entitled A Haven in a Heartless World, where the world beats you down and you go through the door, the front door of your home, and things are good. A haven. I mean, ideally, that's what it is intended to be. But on the other hand, families struggle. Families are messed up, and all too often things go haywire. Dysfunctionality enters in. Now, the fact is that no family is all this or all that. No family is as portrayed all the time on Instagram or in the iconic Christmas letter that's sent out. How annoying are those, right? Because you pick out the best, the cherry-picked best, and then that's it. So no family is fully that. And no family is totally messed up with no hope. And I think that's why families can best be described as complex. Complex. Where, um, where we live out our lives in real time with real experiences. Second, seems to me that all families have kind of a common thread running through them. A, a core set of principles that are communicated, lived out, and held accountable within the family structure. And it would be interesting for you uh, as a family to sit down and write, what are our core principles? You know, what are the hidden rules or overt rules that kind of drive us as a unique family? According to Pete Scazzaro, who um, authored uh, a number of amazing books. Uh, Jeff is using Pete's materials, as I am this morning. Much of what I'm going to share with you comes out of 
uh, Pete's uh, book on emotionally healthy individual and church and all the rest. Pete and I, by the way, have uh, the same degree from the same seminary. And Pete took the materials that uh, were so helpful to me and to so many others down at a seminary in Philadelphia and put it into usable form, and I highly commend it to you. But Pete says this about the fact that all families organizing around a set of core principles. Family behavioral patterns operate under a set of, in quotes, commandments. Some of them are spoken and explicit, most are unspoken. They are hardwired into our brains and DNA so much so that apart from the intervention of God himself and biblical discipleship, we simply bring these expectations into our closest relationships, including, I would suggest, church relationships as adults. Family behavioral patterns, a set of family commandments, hardwired into our brains and our DNA. Now, some of those are incredibly healthy and life-giving and wonderful. And some of those are unhealthy. They're, they're destructive, and they need to change. Which leads me to a third observation I've had after 40 years of living life as a youth pastor with so many memories of so many families. And it is this. Change within a family is painfully, uniquely painfully difficult. According to rabbi psychotherapist Edwin Friedman, in his book, Generation to Generation, and by the way, as an aside, that this book, aside from the Bible, is the most helpful book I've ever read in my life. Written by a rabbi psychotherapist. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, um, <laughs> but it explained to me uh, what I was experiencing in real time, especially working with families, generation to generation, Edwin Friedman. And according to him, family systemic change is incredibly difficult. That, that's no surprise, but he goes on to describe why, where he, he says that there is like this force on all family systems called homeostasis. And the best description I've ever heard or come up with with what homeostasis is, is like this force on a family that demands status quo no matter what. Even if it's dysfunctional, status quo, that change is more frightening than dysfunction. And, and when you stop and think about it for a while, change is scary. You know, things are bad, but they who knows what exponentially it could become. So there's this force, Friedman says, on all families, and by the way, all systems, churches are one big complex family. And there's this force on us saying, keep it the same, keep it the same. It could be so much worse. When in fact, at some point, it becomes untenable and change needs to be pursued. But it is very very difficult. And so families all too often stay stuck in a dangerous, destructive dance that goes on and on and on and not, and this is the scary part, not just now, but for generations to come. Do you dare interrupt the dance? Which leads me to a fourth observation. 
And it is this in the heels of that. Change is possible. I mean, you read Friedman's book, and you come to the conclusion, and there's no gospel in it, um, but you come to the conclusion, as helpful as this book was, that change is impossible. Like, how could it ever be? But in fact, we know that change, as you read the gospel, and as you pour yourself into scripture, that change is possible. Change is possible. It's not easy, but it's possible. Dysfunctional patterns, generations in the making, can be interrupted. And it comes down to this, that yes, the past impacts the present, but no, it doesn't have to dictate what happens in the future. The past impacts the present, but the impact on the future can be, if you dare, interrupted. Now, when I start thinking about the past, present, future intermingle, my mind, maybe yours, immediately goes to that iconic 80s trilogy, Back to the Future. You know what I mean? I remember when that came out in 85. Amy was pregnant with Andrew, and we went to see it because it was super hot down in Philly, and we sat in a nice cold movie theater and watched that movie, and it was so great. You know, going back, going forward into the present, it was this complex intermingle when the past, present, future influence each other in a wild web. And one of my favorite moments comes when Marty McFly asked Doc Brown this question. And it's a question that whether you've asked it verbally, I know it's in your, in your thoughts. I, from time to time, it has been in mine. Where Marty goes, Doc, what about my future? Doc, what about my future? To which Doc replies, I can't tell you. If, I, if, you, if you knew, it might make things worse. Wait a minute, Doc, Marty says. What's wrong with my future? Marty, Doc, responds, we all have to make decisions that affect the course of our lives. You got to do what you got to do, and I've got to do what I've got to do. And then he says this, Marty, the future isn't written yet. It can be changed. You know that. And I think that's the truth. I think that's the punchline I want to leave with you This morning, the future has not been written yet. The dysfunction, as complex and scary as it is, can be interrupted. We can break through forces that try to keep things as they are. Jesus is stronger than homeostasis. He is. And he has the Holy Spirit at work to bring about health where unhealth is. Change can happen. An unhealthy, unfortunate future built on dysfunctional past is not inevitable. One of the best examples of that truth is found in Joseph of the Old Testament. As Audrey just mentioned, I think that song could have been Joseph singing that in the midst of all the pain and all the tears and all the regret, God, you were with me. And I'm in a better place because of it. Joseph of the Old Testament. What a, what a key figure in all of Scripture. And when you think about it, um, reading through Joseph's amazing life, in many ways he was more healthy, more focused on the Lord than even David himself. Joseph of the Old Testament. You remember him. He was the, the guy with the coat of many colors. You know, you learned all about him in, 
in Sunday school. Joseph is central to God's story laid out in the pages of Genesis. But to truly understand him, you have to weave back through generations. And those generations that came before him, his dad, his grandpa, his great-grandpa, were train wrecks. I mean, godly men, godly women that struggled with life and things of the Lord like we all do. But how could it be that God would choose an incredibly dysfunctional family as a center core explanation of his story? I mean, if I was writing, if I was God and I was writing a book about me as God, which would be scary, I wouldn't put a train wreck of a, of, a, of a family as exhibit A of what I hope for. You know what I'm saying? And that's what God chose to do. And, and thankfully, he did. Because we see ourselves in our own mess and our own struggles and our own victories and the Lord interceding and bringing about healing in the midst of it. There is no shining, perfect example to live up to here. There is nitty-gritty wrestling with God and with each other in the middle, especially in the pages of Genesis. Joseph was one of, had one, was one of 12 brothers. His father was Jacob. Jacob means deceiver. That's not a great name to have, and he lived up to it, you know? And you know the stories related to Jacob. He lied to just about everybody he came in contact with. Jacob played favorites, which he learned um, from, his, from his mom. His favoritism almost cost Joseph his life and sold him into slavery. Joseph's grandpa, Jacob's dad, was Isaac, which, who had his own issues, which I always figured was probably not the least of which the fact that he experienced as a young man almost being sacrificed by his dad. Like, how do you deal with PTSD after that? You know what I'm saying? And then there's Abraham, who lied twice about his wife, Sarah, favored one son over another, had a child out of wedlock, and Hagar. The, the, the list goes on and on and on. Lies, favoritism, emotional cutoff, struggling marriages. Man, they all left an unconscious imprint on Joseph. They leave unconscious imprints on us all. It's real life, which can lead to multi-generational brokenness and dysfunction. And such was the case for Joseph. And so here's the question. How was it that Joseph broke the patterns of incredible family dysfunction? How did Joseph do it? I mean, again, Joseph comes across as incredibly healthy, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. Again and again and again, Joseph, if I had been him, I would have just like cashed it out. Like, this is terrible. Where are you, God? Thanks a lot, brothers. Dad, how could you? And the pain and the struggle throughout. And yet, he comes across is so wonderfully healthy. What was it in Joseph's life that enabled him to go from a place of absolute despair to ultimate victory? And, and we see that played out. How did he refrain from the natural inclination that we all have as humans to live lives as petty, of 
jealousy and selfishness and the rest, that his brothers lived to a T. How did he go from being a young man sold into slavery, left for dead by his family, to becoming the second most powerful person in the world? And, and we have no equal to that. It's not like vice president of the United States. It's like he was the second most powerful person in the world, and Pharaoh uh, said whatever, like he had the power of Pharaoh. He was second only to Pharaoh to go from this to that. How did that happen? And along the way, again, to show such incredible maturity and health, spiritually, emotionally, and otherwise. And how might we do that today? I, I, I want to share with you, before we share together around the communion table, four life lessons from Joseph, real quick. One is, Joseph developed a profound sense of the bigness of God. Joseph developed a strong sense of the bigness of God. Throughout his life, Joseph knew that God was big. And he, he leaned deep into him. He trusted him. Like, you just get that sense throughout that this is bad, this is terrible, this could end it all, but I'm betting on God like I know in my heart. And he picked that up from his dad and his grandpa and his grandma and his mother. So it's not all like, bad from his childhood lineage, he had learned along the way that God, his God was a big God. And may you and I develop that sense that God is big, that he's bigger than we could ever imagine. Secondly, Joseph embraced the pain of sadness and loss. He didn't run away from it. He didn't, like I always like the image of sweeping it under the rug, of pretending like it doesn't exist. Joseph felt the pain, and he embraced it. And you get that sense as you read his story in Scripture. Joseph struggled through the memories. Think of the loss. He, from a very young child, he lost his dad. He had no contact with his mom, with his great big family. He had lost so much. And Scripture goes out of the way. This, the, the first time I noticed this, it just hit me like, like a board across the side of the head when I noticed this, that Scripture records that Joseph cried six times. Six times. In fact, and, and it's like this. Joseph cried. Joseph cried. Joseph cried. Joseph cried. Joseph cried. Joseph cried. You see what I mean? Like, Scripture's bending over backwards to show you that he felt the pain, that he wasn't rising above it. In fact, at one point, it records that Joseph sent the people out of his palace. He was the second most powerful person in the world. We have nothing like it today. And he sends all of his servants out, and Scripture says that he screamed and cried and wailed so loud they heard him out there outside the palace, in agony. Joseph embraced the pain of sadness and loss. And he also, along the way, ex experienced the comfort of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 1, Jeff used this passage along the way in this series, Praise be to the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in, a, in time of trouble. And that passage goes on, Paul does, to use that word comfort over and over and over. Something amazing happens when we dare to feel the pain. 
and pretend like it doesn't exist. Something amazing happens, and it is the comfort of the Lord himself. May that be true for us. Third, Joseph rewrote his life script according to Scripture. Joseph was clearly a man of Scripture. He understood the historical impact of God in the life of people. He didn't have the New Testament yet, didn't even have much of the Old Testament, but he was a man after God's own heart and understood the Scriptures that existed um, and, and the, the time in which he lived. Joseph knew that God's story uh, was very interactive with himself, and he lived his life according to them. And may, may we be that when we hear the lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves. May we reorient those according to Scripture. Scripture peak, speaks truth to us in a postmodern world where there is no truth speak. You know what I mean? We tell lies, culture tell lies, Scripture speaks the truth about God, about us, about you, about the hope that's found through Jesus. Joseph rewrote his life script according to Scripture. And then finally, Joseph partnered with God to be a blessing to others, beginning with his own brothers who had treated him so badly. Joseph was kind to his brothers, Genesis 50, verse 21. Do not fear, brothers. I will provide for you and your little ones. And then Scripture says he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Earlier in chapter 4, there's an incredible encounter that he has with his brothers, and he says they're feeling terrible. They know they're doomed. And he, and he, he says, don't beat up on yourselves, brothers. Don't, don't go so hard on yourselves. And later, Scripture says Joseph kissed all his brothers, wept over them, and spent hours talking with them. How could he do that? And, and more importantly, how could we do that? How might we live out Jesus' words? You've heard it said to love your enemy and hate your in, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you might be children of God. The only way is to love your enemy is with God's help. And like Joseph, may you and I be about that. And as we do, may you and me, may we like Joseph experience healing and wholeness in our families in the church and in the world that is in desperate need of healing and wholeness. May we experience that in the days ahead as we lean deep into the fact that our God is bigger, that pain is real, but it doesn't last forever, that our life story isn't finished yet, the history has happened, what has happened has happened, but the future hasn't been written yet. And in the end, God has big plans for you, for your family, for this church, for America, for the world. God knows what he's doing, and he's bigger. Now, the story of Joseph crescendos with chapter 50, verse 20, and I want to end with this. Here it is from the New King, King James Version. But as for you, he's speaking to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is in this day, to save many people. There's two pieces to that verse. And either one is very lacking, but together it's like healing dynamite in relationships. Chapter 50, verse 20, has often been called the 50-20 principle of forgiveness. 
And you see the two parts there. Joseph standing before his brothers, and he lets it fly. I bet it even turned physical. What you did, you meant for evil. There's no way he said, now, what you did, you meant for evil. He goes, how dare you? How dare you? You, you stole my childhood. I, I, I've been in agony ever since that day. How dare you? How could you? I'm your brother. You destroyed me. How could you do that? It was so evil. What you did, you meant for evil. Off with their heads. He could have just ended it there. And it would have been totally within his right to do it. And that would have helped nothing. On the other hand, the second half of this verse, he could have said, you know, don't worry about it. God, God took care of it all. Look at how it turned out. I'm the second most powerful person in the world. Go get dad and, and everything's okay. Let, let's just forget about that. That wouldn't have helped anything. That one-two punch of telling the truth, looking somebody in the eye, what you did, you meant for evil. And, and I'm, finding, I'm trying to find it within me to forgive you, and I know God's going to help me do that, but I just need you to know, you hurt me deeply. That really, how could you? But my God is so much bigger than that. He took that horrible thing and brought about this good. Look at this. I'm the second most powerful person in the world. Go get dad. And, and let's get to know each other in a whole new way. That one-two punch is the key to healthy relationships. Call it like it is. And then with God's help, move on. And that, ultimately, is what this is all about. Because here, God took the worst thing in human history that ever happened. What is the worst thing that's ever happened to you? You, you can identify that in your head. You maybe have shared that with someone. Maybe you haven't. Think about it. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you that you've ever experienced? The most agonizing, inappropriate thing that's ever happened to you. It's bad, it's terrible, it's probably evil, but it doesn't compare to this. This is the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world. God's son was crucified, tortured, and killed. And then what did God do? He took the worst thing that ever happened in the history of humanity, of the world, and he turned it into the best thing. What's the best thing that's ever happened in the history of the world? Jesus defeating your sin and defeating death and, and giving us life back. So if God can take the worst thing that ever happened and make it the greatest thing that ever happened, he can take your bad and transform it into good. It may not be easy. It may not be quick. But there is hope. You know what I mean? And, and my guess is, it's within you, but it's also within your family, possibly, or other relationships. To call it like it is, to do what it takes, to have courage, and to move on with God's help. And maybe this is a great place to start. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your assurance that all is not hopeless, that all is not lost. 
for us as individuals, for us as families, for us as a church family, for us as a country, for us as a world that you love so much that you sent your son, Jesus. Jesus, you came to rescue us forever. And if there's one here that doesn't know you, Jesus, may today be a day of salvation for that one. If there's one here who long ago gave their life to you and it's just been running the other direction, in confusion, in whatever, may they run back to you. May this moment of communion with you start us on a trajectory back to you, into you with you, for you, and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The worst thing that ever happened on the night before that, uh, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his spiritual family. And when they had gathered around the table, after giving thanks, he, he took the bread and he broke it and he held it up and he said, this bread is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat this bread, remember me. And in the same way, he picked up the cup filled with wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant. It's a covenant that's sealed in my blood. Blood that is shed for you, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you drink from this cup, remember me. And so we, as a spiritual family, do just that. When we gather together, when we eat this bread, when we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's life, his death, his glorious resurrection until he comes again. So we will be working from the, the kits and I'd like us all to receive together. So I'm gonna ask if you would just sort of remove the top seal, exposing the bread element and just, just hold it for a minute and we'll all receive together. Christ's body broken for you. And then you can remove the next layer of film, exposing the juice element. Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray. Father, family, it can be a tough topic. In a broken world, uh, 
family dysfunction can be uh, a place where that brokenness is most put on display. Family can be where the scars run the deepest. It can be where the emotions run the highest. And it can be a, it can be a place where um, hard feelings lie dormant and are just waiting to bubble up to the surface. And we just pray that um, Mike's wisdom is filled with us as we approach the holiday season of Thanksgiving and Christmas, where maybe for many of us, uh, family relationships are put to the test. And we just pray that through your love for us, through your saving grace, through your guidance, we're able to dig within ourselves and perhaps find that healing dynamite that may be able to move us forward in healing perhaps relationships that have long since been broken and seem unable to be fixed. And we just pray that you be with us uh, today, that you be with us as we go out into the world this week, and that you be with us as we, uh, as we hopefully model uh, your good news. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.